We'll start with Second um, Samuel 8, verse 15, and then 9, 1 through 13, and it is on page 307 in your pew Bible, if you wish. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Olga. Uh, boys and girls uh, who are story keepers age can uh, head out now to story keepers. Ms. Tara will meet you in the parlor. Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we uh, prepare to think about the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are a father who loves to instruct your children uh, to reveal yourself to us, to reveal the way of life, the way of flourishing. We thank you in advance for this story, for its beauty, but also for what it will teach us. What every one of us is at a slightly different place in our journey of faith, but you are the God who can speak 
powerfully into each one of our lives, and so we ask that you would do that. We ask by your spirit you would come to us and instruct us and help us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably a sign of the times we live in and the longings of our hearts uh, in response to the divisiveness of our society right now, but in 2018, there seemed to me to be an unusual number of songs released that centered on the theme of kindness. The English singer Frank Turner put out an album entitled Be More Kind, the title track of which had these words, in a world that has decided that it's going to lose its mind, be more kind, my friends, try to be more kind. The band Peace released a song that year called Kindness is the New Rock and Roll. With these lyrics, kindness is new rock and roll. Kindness is the climax of the soul. It's all full of love bursting from the scene. So let's make kindness the new rock and roll. Again, in the same year, the American songwriter Courtney Marie Andrews had a song that went like this. Fortune might buy you diamonds all shiny and new, but it can't buy you happiness or love that is true. And if your money runs out and your good looks fade, may your kindness remain. And then perhaps my favorite of all, which perhaps not surprising to you, was by a Northern Irish singer, Ben Glover, song entitled Kindness, May You Know Goodness, May You Know Peace, May You Know Contentment, May You Be at Ease, May the Road Before You Be Soft Beneath Your Feet, More Than All, May This Be True, May You Know Kindness, and May Kindness Know You. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something at least soothing about all these references to kindness, because kindness right now seems to be cool. But here's an interesting thing. Listen to this verse from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 32. He writes, be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other. Now, the average person, when they hear a verse like this, when they hear that Christianity calls us to ongoing forgiveness, endless forgiveness, will say, you know, that, that's so hard. I could never do that without some kind of help. But the, the kind part of that verse, the be kind, well, as far as most of us are concerned, that, that doesn't seem as hard. Or to put it another way, studies show that most people admit that they have trouble with forgiveness, that it's really hard to forgive, but virtually nobody thinks they have trouble with kindness. In other words, even in today's divided and tension-filled climate, it's almost impossible to find someone who will say, yeah, I'm unkind, I'm a pretty unkind person. There are plenty of people who will say, I, I have trouble with forgiveness, I don't know if I'm a forgiving person, but with regard to kindness, people say, well, well I think I'm kind. Or at least I'm kind of kind. Or, well, I mean, I'm kinder than a lot of people I know. Well, I'm not unkind. Well, as we continue in our series in 2 Samuel today, we come to, I think, one of the loveliest stories in the entire Bible and one that has at its center this theme of kindness. But as we're going to see, kindness as defined by the Bible, true kindness, is actually a robust supernatural trait that is impossible without help. Here's what uh, hopefully we'll see today. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. True kindness is God's vertical love to us expressed horizontally by us. And we'll look at this passage in three parts. First of all, the context of kindness. Secondly, the recipient of kindness. Thirdly, the character of kindness. True kindness is God's vertical love 
to us expressed horizontally by us. So first, the context of kindness. 2 Samuel 9 is really something, I think, of an extended illustration of what the narrator tells us at the end of chapter 8. That's why I asked Olga to read chapter 8, verse 15. Let me read it to you again. This time it's from the Christian Standard Bible translation. So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Now, if any of you are following along in the Pew Bible, the ESV, you'll notice it says justice and equity, but the vast majority of the translations out there go with what we have on our screen uh, this morning, not because equity per se is wrong, but, but because the Hebrew word has a wider meaning than just equity, hence the preferred translation righteousness. Through the earlier part of chapter 8 here, uh, the narrator lists David's victories over the Philistines and other nations. He brings peace to Israel so that actually in chapters 8 to 10, David has essentially reached the height of his achievements. And that's reflected in 8.15. The significance of this verse really can't be overstated. But what I want to draw our attention to for a few moments is this phrase, justice and righteousness. Apart from one use in the book of Genesis, this is the first of many, many occurrences of this phrase in the Old Testament, many of which address what God requires in the behavior of his people. So, for example, Proverbs 21, verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And many commentators point out that these two words, when they are together, shouldn't be understood as two distinct concepts, but as a, a wonderful reality uh, rightly described by the, the two words together. It's a justice that is righteous. In fact, Chris Wright, who's an excellent evangelical Old Testament scholar, makes the point that when the Old Testament brings these two words together, the English expression that best conveys their meaning is social justice. That in the Bible, the righteous are those who are not only right with God, but also committed to putting right in other relationships of, in life, seeking, seeking fairness and equity and generosity, a commitment to social justice. Now, Chris Wright gave that suggested translation uh, of social justice in a book he wrote all the way back in 2004. Be interesting to know, given the, how loaded that term has become in our culture today, if he would still use it. I suspect he would. But I know some of you, because you've told me, don't like that term. And to be honest, that's fine. I don't mind what you want to call it, but I do care that we would be people who passionately pursue what the Old Testament calls us to in terms of what is behind the words used here. I hope that everyone here rejoiced to see President Biden signing into law on Thursday of Juneteenth as a federal holiday. As John Stonehouse, whom I know some of you read uh, from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, wrote on Friday, Juneteenth is a day that all Americans should celebrate. And I hope that all of us here feel a certain amount of pride that our community hosts a Juneteenth celebration that gets bigger each year. I hope we all celebrate those things, but I fear some of us don't because there's this tendency among some at the church at large, not just here, but on a national level, to lump everything that we hear or read or see regarding racial justice into the category of what now is famously referred to as critical race theory, CRT, and the people that we may listen to say, well, you know, that's bad, that's dangerous, and you want to steer clear of that. 
Now let me assure you that we do not need to get embroiled in debates about CRT, its vocabulary, its concepts, in order to be advocates of biblical justice, because the Bible gives us all the terms that we need in addressing issues of racial justice, terms like image of God, and terms like love, and hate, and fear, and enemies, and forgiveness, and repentance, and lament, and mercy, and righteousness, and justice. All the terms are there. Justin Gibney, who's the president of the AND campaign in a talk at the Gospel Coalition conference in April, highlighted how all this focus on CRT does a huge disservice to those who have been fighting and advocating for racial justice for centuries as an expression of their biblical faith. Here's what he said. He said, to center critical race theory in a conversation about race, when black Christians have been fighting and weighing in on on the subject for hundreds of years before critical race theory was even a thing, is wickedly insincere. Don't simply argue against the disheveled postmodern academic who knows nothing about biblical justice. Argue against Christians like Frederick Douglass, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Reverend William Augustus Jones, who coupled orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that is, right belief and right practice, who stood ten toes down on scripture while living out their faith under the sword of oppression. Justice and righteousness, social justice, that's what David's reign brought to Israel, and that's the context of the kindness that we're about to see in chapter 9 brings us to the recipient of kindness, verses uh, 1 to 6. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. Now, as the narrator tells us here, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, therefore the grandson of Saul, That's the same Saul who, while he was alive, considered David to be his bitterest enemy. The same Saul whose son Ishbosheth, a brother of Mephibosheth, became David's rival after uh, Saul's death. The beginning of chapter 3, in the whole context of this, we were told there's a long period of war between the house of Saul and the house of David. That's the background. So when when David asked in verse 1, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, it has the feeling of a question of a king who's perhaps concerned that any such person from the house of Saul might be a threat to him and his kingdom and needs to be eliminated. That was the normal protocol for ancient Near Eastern rulers. Every time there was a change of, of dynasty, the name of the game was purge. The family of the new king would seek to eliminate all the descendants of the rival king who had just died. And you don't even have to go outside the pages of the Bible to see this. While the the southern kingdom of Judah from this point on would always be ruled by a descendant of David, the northern kingdom of Israel had no such stability. 
So in the space of 200 years, there were 20 different kings ruling in the northern kingdom, representing 10 different dynasties. You just have to read about Basha in 1 Kings 15, or Zimri in 1 Kings 16, or Jehu in 2 Kings 10, to see what happened to the remnants of a, of a previous regime. And so as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, the conventional political policy at the time was solidification by liquidation. Now, all that helps explain what, that Mephibosheth seems somewhat concerned when he turns up at the palace having been summoned by King David. He, he knew what normally happens to the remnants of defunct dynasties. Mephibosheth understood that he's now the wrong stuff. He's the enemy. He belongs to the previous regime. However, Mephibosheth had not been present earlier to hear all that David had said and David's conversation with Ziba, this servant from the house of Saul, because David's question did not just stop with, is there anyone, still anyone left of the house of Saul, but continued that I may show kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. David wasn't looking to eliminate a threat. He wanted to show any remaining members of the house of Saul kindness but notice the reason, kindness for Jonathan's sake. Because you see, Saul's son Jonathan had foreseen a day when David would reign securely over all Israel and had made the following request to David all the way back in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 to 15, where Jonathan said, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And David had bound himself solemnly to this covenant promise with Jonathan. And as we see here, had not forgotten it. Jonathan was no longer still alive, but the day had come when the Lord had, so to speak, cut off every one of the enemies of David. And if and when that day came, David had promised not to cut off his steadfast love, that is his kindness, from Jonathan's house. David's question here in verse 1 was therefore for Jonathan's sake. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? But that's not the whole story here, is it? Because while Mephibosheth was a prince's son, he was also a helpless, dependent cripple. The exact meaning of his name is uncertain, but all the options suggested include one common feature, that his name included the word shame. Back in chapter 4, we read that Mephibosheth had been five years old when news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths had arrived. His nurse had, had hurriedly picked him up, had fled, but it, in all the haste she had dropped him and he had become lame. And now at this point in the story, Aziba tells David Mephibosheth was living in a place called Lodabar, a place that means nothing, a place that means no word. The, the, this grandson of Israel's first king had lost everything and was now living 70 miles away in self-imposed exile in no man's land. But that's all about to change. Because David brings this man of shame from no man's land to the king's palace. And David's first word to the young man is his name, Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth is recognized as a person. He isn't a nameless exile. He has a name. And David, the king, knows his name, Mephibosheth. That if there was any shame associated with the name through the years, it's quickly wiped clean of dishonor as David addresses him here in loyal love. The name's used seven times in this story from this point on without any hint of denigration. Because from this point on, Mephibosheth gets his identity not from a lexicon, but from love. And out of that love, David promises Mephibosheth three things in verse 7. Firstly, he promises protection. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Secondly, he promises provision. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And thirdly, he promises position, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth must have been stunned. He says as much in verse 8 when we're told he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I mean, Mephibosheth would have been glad just to get out of the room alive, and instead, David honors him. David invites him to sit at table with him. The only people who sat at table with king back then were the, son, the sons of the kings and his generals. And now David is treating Mephibosheth as one of those sons. And why? It's because, as we're told three times in this passage, verse 1, verse 3, verse 7, because of kindness. And so to our, our third point, which is the character of this kindness. You know, the Hebrew word that is translated three times in this passage as kindness is a word that shows up all over the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which most of the time relates to how God relates to us. And it's a rich word, really can't be done justice by just one English word. And so when you look through different translations, you'll find it translated in different ways. Sometimes it's steadfast love. Sometimes it's a loving kindness. Sometimes it's mercy and other words. Let me just quote to you two well-known places where we see this word used to give us a flavor of the, its importance in the, in the biblical story. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then Psalm 23, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word mercy there is this hesed word. And the force of that verse is that this goodness and hesed word don't just kind of willy-nilly follow us. They pursue us. God pursuing steadfast love, which is a covenantal love, a love of utter commitment and faithfulness. And the only reason we receive this love is because God initiated it. He pursued us while we were but his enemies. That is, God didn't just kind of stumble across us and decide he should show us a little compassion. He sought us out to extend this love to us, to show mercy to us, to show faithfulness and loving kindness, because hesed is right at the heart of who God is. So consider this, that the writer of 2 Samuel 9 uses the exact same word to describe now on a horizontal axis how David treats Mephibosheth. A word that now we translate here as kindness. And so we come to the sermon 
in a sentence idea again, that true love is God's vertical, true kindness is God's vertical love to us expressed horizontally by us. Now, let me apply this in, in two ways. First of all, again, there's this covenantal nature to this, this kindness. David shows kindness to Mephibosheth based on the covenant he made with Jonathan. Today, as we've said, is Father's Day, and while it can be a difficult day for those of us who, who either uh, haven't had loving fathers or, or don't have loving fathers, it's a day that we're thankful not only for fathers, but in a wider context for the gift of families. And at the heart of families are covenants. In baptism, fathers and mothers make covenantal promises as to how they will raise their children. And of course, marriage is a covenant commitment of a man and a woman to love one another, or if we were to use the language of this passage, to be kind to one another. I wonder how many of us who are fathers here today, if we were to ask our wives or our children to think of three words that describe us, would hear as one of those three words the word kind. One of the most moving examples of covenantal kindness that I know of is that of Robertson McQuilkin, who was president of Columbia International University in South Carolina from 1968 to 1990. The reason his tenure as president came to an end in March 1990 was because his wife was suffering from Alzheimer's. McQuilkin announced his resignation in a letter with these words. My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about 12 years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibility at Columbia, but recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in, in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full-time. This decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. As a man of my word, integrity has something, therefore, to do with this decision, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Judy, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. That's covenantal kindness. Maybe some of us here regret that as we look back on our lives, we haven't been the kind of husbands or fathers or wives or mothers who have demonstrated that kind of covenantal kindness. But the great thing about God is that he's the God who not only forgives, but he's the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, on and on and on. And so this week is a new week in which he's going to give you plenty of opportunities to demonstrate that covenantal kindness in a new way. May we do so. But here's the second application of true kindness as God's vertical love 
to us expressed horizontally by us. That just like God's said love to us, David's kindness to Mephibosheth was at his own initiative. It wasn't just the result of some compassion he felt because they, they'd crossed paths accidentally some, sometime. Mephibosheth was 70 miles away. David has to seek out the opportunity to show this kindness. He looks for a recipient to bless. So that David wasn't just being nice or polite as a king. Niceness and kindness are not the same thing. Kindness requires intentional action. David intentionally looks for someone who would receive his kindness. But it's even more than that. Because when David asks if there's anyone left of Saul's family to whom he can show kindness in Jonathan's name, in effect he's asking, is there anyone left in the enemy camp whom I can love? David was looking for an enemy to love. David wanted to demonstrate benevolence and love toward the unexpected, toward the undeserving, because that's what true kindness looks like in the Bible. God's vertical love to us expressed horizontally by us to the undeserving, just like we were. You know, at the end of C.S. Lewis's little book, The Abolition of Man, he includes a, an appendix in which he demonstrates that the differences between the religions of the world do not lie fundamentally in their ethics. That ethically, all the religions of the world have significant overlap in terms of honoring your father and mother, in terms of caring for the poor, not lying, and so on. The difference between the religions of the world lies primarily in the central matter of salvation, how, how you receive eternal life. We touched on that briefly last week. But when it comes to how you live, the ethics are in many ways quite similar, except here. Because there is one ethical prescription if you believe in the God of the Bible that is absolutely different from anything that you'll find in any other religion. And Jesus expressed it this way, love your enemies, love your enemies. True kindness is love toward the unexpected, towards the undeserving, toward your enemy. And David here was doing that. He was looking for an enemy to love. Surely that's a lesson to all of us. As he reaches out, here, really, to his political opponent. I mean, Mephibosheth was of the other party, and yet David reaches across the aisle, as it were. Here's the guy who, on paper at least, could be a real threat to David's life. That is, they don't just differ over health care and immigration, and David loves him with true kindness. And unless your kindness, at least at times, gets expressed as love towards the unexpected, toward the undeserving, towards your enemies, it's not true kindness. It's a niceness. It's a niceness that's really all about you to get what you're looking for, whether that's gratitude from others or whether that's the esteem that you feel that you deserve or whether it's the need to make someone else happy because otherwise you don't feel like you're a worthwhile person. True kindness is God's vertical love to us expressed horizontally by us to the unexpected, to the undeserving, to even your enemy. So how, did, how could David do this? How did he do it? How could David show such kindness? Well, look again at verse 7 as we close. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. David had a friend in Jonathan 
who loved him covenantally, who put himself in harm's way to take David out of harm's way, who lost the throne so that David could ascend the throne. David had a friend like that, which enabled him to show kindness like this. And so do we. We have a friend who lost a heavenly throne for us and entered this world for us. Listen to this, these couple of verses from Titus 3, 3 to 4, and just notice how Paul refers to Jesus in these verses. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Paul actually refers to Jesus here as the kindness and love of God, that Jesus is God's kindness to us. As Jesus poured out God's love to us, the undeserving, the unexpected, those who were his enemies, in the ultimate expression of true kindness. The ultimate expression, because spiritually speaking, we were crippled like Mephibosheth, unable to help ourselves. But through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus did everything necessary, not only to forgive us, to redeem us, but to seat us at the king's table and to supply us with everything we need in this life and for eternity. And a Christian is someone who says, if Jesus could be kind to me like that, then I can be kind like this, to the unexpected, to the undeserving, to our enemies. Because true kindness is God's vertical love to us expressed horizontally by us to others. And so to paraphrase that Northern Irish singer, Ben Glover, may you know this kindness, may this kindness know you, and may others know it through you. Let's pray. We praise you, God of steadfast love, the God of loving kindness, the God of mercy, the God of kindness to us. That while we were still your enemies, you reached out to us. You took the initiative to pursue us so that you might save us. May that change who we are. May that change how we live, even this week, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationship with friends, in our workplaces. May our kindness be a supernatural kindness that flows out of the kindness that we have received from you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.